Toots. Hey everyone, and welcome to Brave New Church. This is your host, Brad, and I want to wish everyone a very happy Easter. I hope that as the weather's been warming up and the the flowers have begun blooming, you all have enjoyed a wonderful Easter and are looking forward to an exciting new season of life and birth and vitality in your own life and also in the life of your faith community or congregation. Uh, This is an exciting time to be the church, Uh, not only because it is Easter and it is spring and it is a season of new life and rebirth, but because there is so much coming together to transform the very way we understand our call to live out the journey of discipleship in the world, particularly when it comes to how we shape and plan our communities of faith. And so today, I want to explore how a healthy skepticism, a healthy doubt, might just be that secret ingredient to launch you into a new season of life and growth and vitality, both in your own journey of faith and in your congregations. often when we hear the word doubt, we think of it as the opposite of faith. And we often think in faith communities of any religion that doubt is almost the cardinal sin, that faith is the highest virtue, and that doubting what our proclamation is, is a bad thing. But I want to try to turn that on its head today. Because I think reframing how we understand a healthy doubt can transform not only our individual walks of discipleship, but the very vitality of our communities of faith. I want us to start to think of doubt not as a sin, as the opposite of faith, but to begin to see a healthy doubt along the lines of a healthy curiosity or a skepticism, not of our fundamental proclamation, but of maintaining an appropriate perspective on things as we go about our journey of faith. To talk more about this, I sit down with Raymond Boswell, a Presbyterian pastor and alumni of Princeton Seminary. Raymond is currently serving as the Corporate Secretary for the Board of Pensions of the Presbyterian Church USA. Listen in to hear what Raymond has to say. So Raymond, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down. Brad, it's great. I mean, there are a few things I'd rather be doing than staying inside and (laughs) talking about the theology and the future of the church. Hey, I can agree with you on that. So as you know, we are kind of coming off of one of the most important weeks of the year for us as the church and Holy Week and the celebration of Easter. And as any church people know, that means that next week in church, we're going to be hearing the story of Doubting Thomas. And we're going to be hearing about kind of where things were left this past Sunday that some believed and some didn't. And as kind of this proclamation of this miraculous 
resurrection of Christ, this hope where people saw nothing but despair and death. As that kind of blossoms outward, many people don't see it, don't believe it. They're too caught in the despair. They're too conditioned to only see the dark and the fear and the suffering. And even when everyone else is telling Thomas that Christ is risen, he is risen indeed, he doesn't believe that it's possible. So I raise that because I often think of how hard it is for us to accept the good news whether it's in life or as the church today, to see the good news, the possibility for the church in today's world, when we're so used to only seeing the death. So for me, one of the reasons why Thomas really resonates with me and has been resonating with me for the better part of the last 15 years of my ministry has been that I'm really beginning to think of Thomas as kind of the first postmodern disciple. Mm, How so? Well, I mean, and so realize that what Thomas is looking to experience is Thomas is looking to experience his own truth. Mm. Now, remember, when Jesus appeared to the ten, Judas wasn't there. Thomas wasn't there. So Judas appears to them, and they all say, hey, Thomas, you'll never guess. You know, guess what? And, And what really Thomas is saying is, hey, that's wonderful. And all I'm asking for is the same opportunity that you all had. You all got to see the risen Jesus. I want to see our risen Lord and Savior. Um, And I just want the same courtesies that were extended to you. I want to experience this truth with my own eyes. Mm -hmm. I just want the same experience as you all have. And for that very question, Thomas has been uh, labeled as doubting. Mm-hmm. When one way of looking at it would just be Thomas who just wants to be treated the same as everyone else and experience the, the same truth as his colleagues. Right. And there's also always this connotation that we often find that Thomas's doubt is somehow unfaithful. Right. Rather than the very essence of faith. Exactly. Uh, I mean, another one of the reasons why I think that uh, Thomas you know, is the first postmodern disciple is that it actually demonstrates, I think, a majesty and a grace of Christ that that Jesus is going to meet us where we are. Mm. And that is that Thomas says, I just want the same courtesies that you all had. And Jesus appears. And Jesus says, here, Thomas, I want you to feel the holes in my hand. I want you to touch my side. And... The text is silent, exactly what Thomas does. The text does not say Mm. that Thomas ran up and felt his hands or touched his eyes. No, instead, we get Thomas the theologian who makes the first profession of faith, my Lord and my God. So again, as soon as Christ enters into our lives where we are in this moment of doubt, in this moment of wrestling, if you will, that, that God, through the revelation of God's self in the Word, through the revelation of God in Christ, through the revelation of God by the Spirit, is there with us, meeting us where we are, uh, to be able to help us to uh, not just affirm our faith, but claim it and name it, my Lord and my God. So I like to think of it as Thomas the Theologian. Very interesting. I wonder what that then has to 
say to us today when we are living in a time where many, both within and outside of the church, are really questioning whether the, the, the message of Jesus, of the risen one, is relevant in today's world. Whether it's in the church and the disciples are huddled together in a room with the doors locked, even though that's the exact opposite of what Jesus told them to do, or if it is those people outside those doors after Jesus has appeared that just don't even know that this is happening. I wonder often if in today's world we are communicating that proclamation, my Lord and my God, or if we give the impression that our faith is a thing from a a bygone era. What do you think it means for the church to be relevant in that context? So I think that you may or may not find this as a surprise, but I think that Thomas continues to give us an answer. Mm. Now, if we roll back the narrative a little bit, as Christ is turning his face towards Jerusalem, where he knows he will die, it is this self-same doubting Thomas who could have been Thomas the theologian, but now Mm -hmm. I will call Thomas the brave, who turns to the other disciples and says, let us also go to Jerusalem so that we might die with him. And so even before the resurrection, you, you do have Thomas showing us what it means to be firm in one's faith, that, that Thomas is willing to lay down his life. But we don't like to think about that because it doesn't fit neatly into this narrative of a doubting Thomas. Right. right. Now, as far as what that means to us today, I mean, I do think that in this postmodern environment, first of all, I think it means that we should not put an emphasis on what the world thinks of us. Mm. Um, and that is that I, I, I would hope that Thomas, who demonstrated a desire to go to Jerusalem to die with Christ, is a Thomas the Brave and who is confident in his faith that he can articulate the breadth and depth of what he is willing to do. Mm-hmm. I also think that Thomas can speak to the relevance of the church today in being able to articulate my Lord and my God. And I also think that there is an articulation of Thomas where, again, the text does not tell us that he did do what he asked, which is to touch the hands and the side. But instead, he moved forward confident in his faith. And ultimately, again, as a Presbyterian, another one of the reasons why I am very grateful for the contributions of Luther is through his small catechism, where Luther constantly asks, what does this mean? Mm -hmm. And so how then can we demonstrate with this solid confidence of Thomas where it is, you know, where death is not something to be afraid. We're making a proclamation of faith that Christ is our Lord and our God is not something that is going to intimidate us and yet instead is going to inspire us. That is my hope for how we can have a much more relevant witness today. Yeah, I often argue that the doubt isn't the opposite of faith, mm-hmm. but a, a crucial component to it. Amen. And, and in fact, with a lot of the work that I do focused on forming faith, I've long advocated for the fact that I don't care if I teach the students or the youth right answers to the questions, whatever those questions might be, which is too often kind of the approach, but I'm much more interested 
in starting to get them to ask interesting questions mm-hmm. about their faith, about mm-hmm. their life, about how it intersects in meaningful ways. And, and I, I think one of the things that has to do with not just doubting Thomas and his faith, his faith expressed in his doubt as well as his proclamation, but also with Easter, is that if the risen Christ is a living Christ, then it is God who we are in relationship with today. If the Easter proclamation has any meaning, uh, it means that we don't worship a historical Jesus who is fixed and the canon is closed on, but a living Christ who we are in relationship with today, despite what may be happening in the church or the world around us. And any relationship necessarily implies an openness to change, to transformation, to an unfolding narrative. Um, So I'm curious what you think that might mean for our faith. If we believe in a living Christ, how does that change the way that maybe we understand our our place as church or as followers? I think it's the great hope and the great demonstration of what it means to be a civil society in what is quite often an uncivil environment. Mm. You know, and that is that, you know, speaking to not just this willingness to change, but this idea of transformation, but more importantly, you know, this arc of ultimately forgiveness and reconciliation. Yeah. I mean, where my mind has changed over 15 years of ministry has been, you know, one of the parlor games that I used to play, or I still play, is summarize the gospel or summarize the Bible in a single word. And for the longest time, my word was transformation. That, you know, here I am, I am changed from someone who is a sinner to one who is saved and I'm restored to a right relationship with God. The problem that I realized is that is still just very task-focused. That's mm. very, that only describes what happens to me internally. Now my word is reconciliation. Because reconciliation speaks to not only something that's outcome-oriented, but it speaks to how I am, literally, as you were saying, in relation to the other. Not only the relationship that I have with God, but also the relationship that I have with neighbor. Right. And I think that this is one of the unique claims and one of the unique gifts that Christianity has for the world, not just today, but that it has always had, and it is more needed now, is this idea of reconciliation, of how we can sit down with our neighbor and be. Mm-hmm. And so often when the question of the relevancy of the church in today's world is asked, it's asked from a place of fear. It's asked from a place of loss, of grief, mm-hmm. uh, over feeling that the church is not as relevant in today's world as it used to be or mm-hmm. as it once was. And so again, I come back to this concept of what it means to be in a relationship with the risen Christ. Like you were talking about, the, you know, the reconciliation transforms where we stand in relation to the world around us. And so too often we ask the question of relevancy. We're coming at it from the outside in. We're asking questions of strategy and tactics and things of that nature. But I think central to this notion of who we are as an Easter people is that we are people who are transformed through relationships. So that relationship is first, so that it precedes the transformation. And it's relationship with God through Christ and relationship with others. And so if that's at the very beginning, then being relevant means being in a living relationship with God and the world around us. 
Amen. <laughs> I, th- I think we solved the puzzle. <laughs> Well, maybe uh, we'll have some deeper questions to delve into again another day, but I want to thank you so much for your time today, Raymond. Brad, the pleasure and privilege has been mine. Thank you. Thank you so much. always, when the topic of congregational vitality and health arises, it's in the form of conversations on strategic planning, visioning, or setting of and deliberately following up on specific goals. But if we follow our theology rather than the business trend of the week, it teaches us a different lesson. It teaches us that healthy communities and vibrant people of faith are formed not through a strategic plan, but through vibrant practices, through forming habits of faith that permeate our lives. Here to share a bit about her own faith journey and how powerfully this was true for her is a seminary student at the Lutheran Seminary in Philadelphia, Laura Taddy. Laura has some interesting reflections to share, not only about her own journey towards ministry, but also about what was and wasn't impactful for her in shaping her journey of faith. You know, when I was younger, I didn't come from, uh, you know, I'm not the daughter of a pastor. (laughs) Um, I don't have any clergy in my family, so... You know, I, I have a, I, I wouldn't even say religious family. You know, my family definitely believes in God and sees Jesus as their savior, but it wasn't something that was necessarily pounded in my head, might be the most blunt way to say it, right, as a kid. So we went to church on Sundays, you know, I was confirmed in uh, communion and baptized Lutheran. You know, we, we would always say goodnight, God bless you to each other, and we'd say the Lord's Prayer together before bed, and we'd even read a chapter of the Bible. But it was more about, like, how to do it. Right. And I think that piece was always missing. And when I've talked to my parents, my dad was a converted Catholic to the Lutheran religion. Um, So there's always kind of this like split between our families. You know, we had a half Roman Catholic family and half Lutheran or half Protestant. And it was really impactful. And I didn't understand why, as I started to kind of come out into the world and, and even see my family dynamic, why it was such a tear in people. Right. The same people that believed in God, believed in Jesus couldn't see eye to eye. And it was only because of religion, right? This, this man-made denomination thing. So I remember as a kid, like from probably eight or seven or eight years old, I, I had Galatians 5, 22 to 23 on my wall. I don't even know how I came across it, but I knew that that's what I wanted to be when I grow up. And it was really wow. interesting. Yeah. Um, again, no idea. <laughs> you can always kind of attribute that to God, but, and the Holy Spirit. But, um, so, so anyhow, that I think that's an important piece to look at because I think about that and then I think of how far off track I got in, in college and how I just sort of really became manipulated, right, by the world's definition of success. But in doing that, it's like I completely denied who my soul said that I was and, and who God really um, said that I was. So I went and did that. Um, and... Got, got even to a point where I noticed there were just some things about me and 
that I wasn't accepted, um, you know, in throughout my family and these people that I loved and we practiced this like level of unconditional love. So I had, I had chosen a different, um, I guess, sexual orientation than normal people, um, at that point. And I really didn't see it as an issue. I didn't think it was like something that had to even be said. It was like, Oh, well, this is how I was made weird, right. but okay. <laughs> we'll go with it. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to do? Um, and to every extent, it was like people kept pointing me to the Old Testament and saying how much of a sin it was. And so it made me really confused because this this image of Jesus I had as a child that I nobody influenced inside me. No one talked to me about. No one said this is what you should believe Jesus to be. It was something innate within me. Didn't make sense. And it didn't make sense at church. And I think how all this ties together is not just a rant about my life, but it's like, Throughout that time period, nobody was teaching me the Bible as it is as a whole story. It was like, I'm going to pick and choose from the Old Testament what culture today and what our generation chooses to kind of use as hate, right, towards each other. Not to dig into it and wrestle with it and see how it affects us as individuals, but more to punish each other. And furthermore, make us not feel accepted, you know, as a child of God. So, you know, when I look at that, I see, I can look back and see how the enemy really used the people closest to me and even at church, right? How to kind of penetrate that and make me really distracted from my relationship with God. So, so I went off and I thought, I'm going to do this by myself then. I don't, I don't need anybody. I don't need anybody's help. I'm just going to go make a lot of money and do this on my own. And, and I did. And for about a decade, it was, it was a horrific spiritual battle. You know, there There were definitely some good times that, you know, I learned a lot. I ended up in the field of orthopedics. So I was working with surgeons to design orthopedic implant systems, um, hip and knee replacements, spinal reconstruction, foot and ankle, that kind of thing. And, you know, what's more interesting is when I looked at the general sense, I was going to church on Sundays still, you know, I'm still kind of worshiping and and going through these motions, I think, is the best way to say it. Um, And I started to see, you know, church more as like this building, if that makes sense. Like it was a program. uh, It was a gathering of people. But, you know, I I just couldn't put together that this is like the house of Jesus, right? This church with a capital C. Um, And at that point in my career, I was traveling everywhere. So I wasn't just, this isn't like an end of one, you know, Lutheran church in, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This is, you know, Lutheran, Catholic, Episcopal, Jewish synagogues, Hindu temples, Buddhist, you name it, I explored it. Like someone once told me I was searching for God, like a woman with her head on fire searches for a bucket of water. <laughs> and so I wasn't, uh, I wasn't opposed to even asking these questions and kind of, you know, I think a lot of people when they start to form their identities too in their twenties, it's like they become so attached to them, right? We become attached to our, to our race, to our ethnicity, to our sexuality, to all these things. And we start to identify with them, the corporate titles, paychecks, all, all of these things the world says are, are who we are. And when we go to church, no one really says that's not who you are. The philosopher Socrates once famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Too often in our lives, as well as in our own faith journeys and the lives of our congregations, we don't take the time to pause, to reflect, 
to ask the fundamental question of why we are doing what we are doing in the first place. A healthy skepticism, a healthy doubt like that of Thomas, could be the secret ingredient to launching new paths of exploration and inquiry and innovation in our own congregations and in our own lives. I hope that in the weeks to come we can continue to reflect upon this fundamental question of why. Why do we do the things that we do? Are they simply habits? Are they simply things that we are in cycles of and we repeat because they are familiar? In other words, are they dead, entrenched limbs of plants that have already lived their season? Or are they the bright shoots jutting up from the earth, launching us into a new season of growth and life and vitality? I hope you'll continue to be part of this conversation in the weeks and months to come. You can find us at our online home at bravenewchurch.org, where you'll find forums and articles, blog posts, and resources to help equip you and your congregation for ministry, innovation, and experimentation in the 21st century. Until next time, may God bless you in this blessed Easter season, and may you find what God is already up to in your neighborhood.